Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq el and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. And if you are new to the Radio Islam family, thanks for tuning in. Keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You might miss the live broadcast, but you can always go back to SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, tune in. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right. Uh, this is, I guess, we're all taking a breath right now. Those of us who have been uh, covering the midterm elections and uh, looking to see what was going to happen and how things would play out. Uh, so we're going to keep moving. And I think today's conversation really, um, it's going to, it, it's really relative to the fact that we now have two new elected uh, Muslim uh, Muslim officials, uh, and not everybody thinks that's a that's a that's a good sign. Um, so today we have on the line with us to kind of talk about some of the the sentiments uh, that the uh, the general American population has regarding uh, Muslims. We have joining us again, Dr. Robert L. McKenzie. He is the director and senior fellow of the Muslim Diaspora Initiative. And they recently conducted a survey of 1,785 people to examine the general public's views on Muslim Americans. And we're going to talk to them about this work. Welcome to Radio Islam again. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yes. Yeah, so what were the, um, let me ask this, what was the, the question or the group of questions that initially prompted this particular survey? Well, as you know, I, I did a, uh, a comprehensive um, cataloging of anti-Muslim activities at the state and local level, which I, I completed, I guess, six months ago. Mm-hmm. And it's an ongoing project. Uh, but what I wanted to do, the next step, was to try and get an understanding of what does the general public think about uh, Muslim Americans? Mm-hmm. Take a deep dive. Right. And I wanted to do this in the lead-up to the midterm elections at a time when Muslims and other minorities um, are often front and center at local, state, and federal um, elections. So we ran this survey um, as late as possible in the cycle um, to get a sense of, of what do uh, what do Americans think about Muslim Americans on a full range of issues. Mm. Now, this was a multimodal survey. That's uh, correct. So what communication modes uh, did you use? So um, we commissioned this to a survey firm, and I should say that New America did this uh, okay. in collaboration with um, an organization um, called American Muslim, uh, the American Muslim Institution. And so we commissioned this to a uh, survey firm called SSRS. Mm-hmm. And uh, they um, um, conducted the survey um, using um, cell phone, landline, and um, web-based um, uh, surveys. And so that's, that's how it was conducted. And the reason for this is that... Um, you can't get everybody on the phone, and also the research shows that when you um, have people fill out surveys uh, on the privacy of their uh, computer um, or on their phone, uh, in mobile that is, uh, you, you get a different sort of uh, response and oftentimes a more um, uh, candid uh, response, especially when you're asking some hard questions. Right, right. Now, seeing as how um, you did this leading up to being close to the midterm elections, what were some of the 
Uh, what, what was some of the feedback that you got regarding Muslim participation in civic life, uh, seeking elected office? Well, there, there's, there's a couple of positives that I, I, that I want to point out. And, and first, it's, it's that 85 percent of Americans think that diversity is a good thing for the country. Mm-hmm. And a similar majority uh, believe that Muslim Americans contribute positively to the U.S. economy and society. And uh, two-thirds of Americans agree that it's a positive sign of progress for the country that over 100 Muslims ran for office this election cycle. Right. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. It so- is. But I should, I should tell you, in contrast to those numbers, which I think are all positive, mm-hmm. uh, in sharp contrast to those numbers, uh, half of Americans express concern that extremism is spreading within Muslim communities in America. Forty-two percent of Americans um, believe that Islam is not compatible with American values. Thirty-eight percent of Americans believe that Muslim Americans are not as patriotic as other Americans. And when prompted to guess, two in five, two out of five Americans reported they believe Muslim Americans don't want to fit in to American society or have respect for American laws. So, it, what this shows is that fear and myths and misinformation about Muslims is nuanced. And what the data also shows is that it cuts across party lines. There's no question, um, you know, that uh, the data shows that um, party affiliations, specifically Republicans, had much stronger negative views um, when it comes to Muslims. In fact, their views were one and a half times more likely uh, of, of being non-accepting of Muslims, but there's no question that that myths and misinformation cross, you know, spread across party lines. Cuts across party lines. Um, just to give you one example, um, you know, Americans have a grossly inaccurate understanding of, of the size of the Muslim population. Uh, Non-Muslim Americans believe that one in six Americans are Muslim. That that would make uh, the Muslim population 17 percent. In right. This country. Right. And we're at about one percent in reality. That's correct. That's, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, and if you talk to Muslim community leaders, many think the number is, is larger than that. Uh, I've talked to the scholars at Pew that work on this, specifically Bashir Muhammad, who oversees, who's their senior scholar, who oversees their work on, on Muslim communities in the U.S. And even if that number were, were off, let's say it was twice as much, it's not even remotely close to 17 percent. Right. And um, I, I think that what what's a little bit concerning here is that you've got these fears and and uh, you have these fears about Muslims, but you also have this inflated sense of, of how big the community is. So if you if your average American is worried about Muslims and they think that, you know, the community is 17 percent, you know, it would it might suggest to your average American that, wow, you, not only is extremism spreading, but you have this massive community. And it, it just uh, it, it can lead to, obviously, some, some real problems. Do we think this is really just related to the fact that, the, that there's an, over, an over-reporting uh, on Muslim Americans in, in terms of the population? Uh, and usually, uh, quite often, that reporting is, is negative. Do you think that, is, that, that kind of runs in lockstep with this uh, perception that the Muslim American community is far larger, was well, far smaller than uh, the respondents in the survey thought. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I don't know. I mean, I, I I wonder how much of this has to do with the fact that we have a president 
you know, who yeah. throughout his campaign and certainly since uh, his being inaugurated has done an awful lot to fan the flames. Sure. And so, you know, as some of your listeners may recall, it was, you know, after the spectacular terrorist attacks in, you know, uh, in, in Europe, you had folks like Donald Trump making remarks. You also had people like Chris Christie saying he wouldn't take in a five-year-old orphan from Syria, suggesting right. there's something fundamentally wrong with Muslims, that you can't even take in an unaccompanied minor. You had 30-some-odd governors who said that they wanted to, to um, suspend refugee resettlement until they understood who exactly was coming in. So, you know, there was just this sense that, um, that you know, one, Muslims are dangerous and that the communities are larger than they are. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, that's where I think this comes from. And it's, it's worth noting that, you know, one in three respondents said that they feel uncomfortable when they see Muslim Americans wearing a veil or Islamic attire. Right. One in three respondents said they'd be concerned if a mosque or Islamic center was built in their neighborhood. And one in three respondents believe that Muslims should be subjected, Muslim Americans should be subjected to extra security screenings at the airport. And so, you know, the fear about Muslims is, is I think, in part due to the Muslim memory from 9-11. Right. Um, but also because we've had elected officials and the media um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, reinforce these stereotypes. And, and we certainly cover, um, we certainly cover acts of violence committed by, um, by Muslims uh, differently than those acts of violence that are committed by, say, white Christian men. Um, and and I don't know if that's a, if that's a question that has been posed to, um, to you know, to the public. You know, how do you see these two different? considering that the almost, I want to say it's upwards of 90% of the uh, homegrown uh, terrorism that is taking place here in the United States has been uh, enacted by white Christian men. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And, um, you know, it, it certainly was captured uh, in, in tragic ways a few weeks ago when we had the uh, horrific attack in the synagogue. Yeah. And, you know, that's just one of you know, a number of incidents that, that we have seen by uh, white nationalists or white supremacists. And uh, to your point, though, um, you know, not all violence is, is uh, viewed or discussed the same in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And it's a real problem. But I'll tell you, um, you know, have, uh, first and foremost, Donna, as a, as a, as a academic who, you know, spent a lot of time working on the Middle East, Mm-hmm. You know, we don't cover terrorism or uh, mass murder in the rest of the world the way we do in the West. Mm. I mean, a few years ago, there was a horrific attack um, in Kenya. Yes. And, you know, it was just a blip on the screen. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, every act of, of, of murder is, is one too many, and we should be appalled by it. But the point is, you know, you have a massacre um, in a mall, and, uh, you know, we it, – it, you know, I think it got very, not I think I know it got very limited coverage yeah. relative to some of the attacks in Europe. And, and again, I, this is not to suggest for a second that the attacks in Europe were not, were not serious. Mm-hmm. It's just to your excellent point, um, they're not viewed or discussed um, in the same way. And, uh, you know, in my previous project that we discussed on your show, you know, the, the, the enormous spike in anti-Muslim uh, activities in the U.S. over the last couple of years 
mm-hmm. is not just the result of the spectacular terrorist attacks in Europe. It's it's the result of, of those attacks coupled with political rhetoric from uh, folks running for office. Right. And both of those things together have created uh, a toxic environment at the local level. Now, you mentioned how uh, bias tends to fall along um, uh, party lines, political ideology. Um, that being said, are, were, there, were there individuals who recognized bias, uh, who recognized bias towards Muslim Americans, uh, but actually fell under the, you know, they associated with, with, with the uh, Republican Party? Yeah, yeah, just to be clear, there is no question that party affiliation uh, played a factor in how people responded uh, about their views about uh, Muslim Americans. Uh, but, I mean, the, the, the fears and, and the myths and the misinformation uh, cuts across party lines. This, right. this, is, this, is, this is a fact. The data bears this out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we did with this study, it was a 14, I should say, that it's a 14-minute long survey. Mm-hmm. And um, it ran, but also offered that it ran between October 16th and October 21st, which was before um, the president and the media started to talk about the caravan and making reference to, you know, smallpox and Middle Easterners and, you know, whatever the, exactly that label means um, in terms of people coming through uh, the caravan. And so um, I suspect if we had run this survey a little bit later, we would have gotten even uh, stronger negative views. Sure. Um, but we, you know, of the 40-some questions that we asked in the survey, um, 20, 20 some questions, just over 25 questions, were about the demographics of the, of the respondents. And, and the reason for this is that, you know, we want to understand what kinds of fears and misinformation people hold about uh, Muslim Americans, but we also want to think about, uh, you know, how to inform a broader public conversation and, uh, equally important, how to inform a, a policy-relevant uh, conversation, because my impression is traveling across the country, um, elected officials at the local and state level uh, are disappointed and saddened to hear this. Not all. Some, some help fan the flames, but mm-hmm. I, I've met a good number of Republican leaders who don't want to hear about this in that it, it saddens them that, that we're in a place where uh, people have these kind of fears. So what we really hope to do with this survey is to use it uh, to inform, again, a broader conversation, but also to put this in the hands of, uh, of, of elected officials and appointed officials at the local and state level because they're best positioned to engage with this stuff, right? So when mm-hmm. something bad happens, um, people are groping for information, they're afraid. And when I say something bad, it's not just a terrorist attack. It could be the president saying... You know, we should have X or Y or Z against Muslims. Um, everybody's scrambling. Um, and so this is the kind of data that will help um, inform, uh, you know, those conversations in a way that I think will be healthier, much healthier than what we currently have. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely think that our elected officials will find value in it. But I also feel like our our educators, uh, whether primary or secondary um, grades, uh, would find a lot of value in this, especially uh, administrators. Um, we recently had a conversation with um, with the researcher that was looking at uh, Islamophobia in textbooks, and uh, and it just led to this led to this uh, you know obvious uh, realization that 
not only our elected officials are, you know, they have a part to play with regard to stoking the, the, the fires, the flames of uh, suspicion and, and, and hatred, but this is also something that's learned uh, in our school systems. Uh, do you see? Do you see this also? This research having uh, also, you know, finding a home uh, in in the school systems as well. Absolutely, and I I find this research that I, I as I've mentioned before, and maybe I should have started the call saying that I you know I'm I'm not an advocate and I'm not an activist. I what I'm trying to do is use scholarship and data right. uh, to tell an informed story about Muslim Americans, um, and um, what this data is super useful for is to engage um, a full range of, of uh, you know, actors. And so there's no question that I, it, it, schools are a place where, you know, children and uh, youngsters start to fashion their ideas about the world. And, you know, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of educators that agree that there's, you know, a real problem with um, fear and myths about Muslims, but this, this puts, you know, facts and figures in front of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, I mean, I just was at, um, I was visiting a, a masjid in northern Virginia in McLean. Mm-hmm. And it, McLean, Virginia is one of the wealthiest, most educated um, cities in the country. And the, the masjid there has had a hard time becoming a, a full-service masjid. And I say that because they're trying to use local zoning laws to um, ensure that they, you can only have so many people at the masjid at any given time in the morning or late in the evening. And, you know, when I talked to the community out there, some of the community leaders, you know, they said, well, they felt like this was an outlier, what was happening to them. And, and it, it may or may not be, but if you have this kind of uh, zoning obstruction by design mm-hmm. in one of the wealthier um, cities in the country, what's happening elsewhere? So, what we hope is that this data is a way for um, community leaders across the country to engage with, with elected officials, because I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the senators from Virginia wouldn't want to hear about this, in that it would concern them and they'd want to leap into action. Right. Because I know that uh, Senator Kane or Senator Warren mm-hmm. would certainly leap into action if, if you know there was obstruction of a synagogue or a church, and I suspect they would feel equally compelled hearing about what's happening to this masjid. So I, I, I guess my broader point is absolutely this is of, of enormous value to educators, mm-hmm. but it's also a way for community leaders uh, to engage elected officials. You know what? I, I, would add, I would add to that also that it's also an opportunity to, uh, to go not just with the quantitative but the qualitative to find out, to get into the whys of why do you feel uh, threatened? Why do you feel uneasy? Um, in the presence of a Muslim dressed in a particular fashion, or at the idea of a uh, of a masjid being built in your neighborhood, that goes beyond. That goes deeper than just what you've heard on television from maybe from our president, maybe from some other. It doesn't have to be uh, an elected leader, but from a community leader. Uh, but why? I think the conversations about why people feel the way they feel have to be had if we're going to. Uh, if we're going to move beyond the fear and the suspicion. I, I completely agree. And one of the questions that we asked in the survey is, is do you personally know a Muslim? Yes. And around 50% said, yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And um, 
which seems a little hard to believe given that Muslims make up 1% of the country. It doesn't seem <laughs> possible, right? Right. Um, but this is what this this is a, a question that's been asked in multiple surveys uh, by different uh, research firms, and it always comes up at around comes out at around fifty percent. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the things that I I've, I've learned anecdotally is that you know familiarity doesn't always breed better relations. And I, I can tell you, I was you know I was born and raised in Southeast Michigan, where you have a very large uh, Muslim population, a very large uh, Arab Christian population, and and there's a lot of just misunderstandings. And uh, to your point, it's so helpful to, to try and understand the why um, and for the community and others to try and engage um, non-Muslim Americans, uh, you know, to, to talk about these things. It's just it's it's super, super helpful. But it's these are also difficult conversations to be had. Sure, sure. And I guess one of the questions that I would ask is uh, when you have— um, so many who don't know uh, Muslims. The, the next question is: Do you do you want to know one? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, let me tell you. So I was having dinner at a uh, with uh, some friends in Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. and the the wife of my friend is. They're both Muslim, and, and she's Muslim, but she's not veiled. Mm-hmm. And she was conveying a story that she's a cardiologist that one of her colleagues. Um, you know, she overheard one of her colleagues saying some pretty horrible things about Muslims. Mm. And she pulled her colleague aside afterwards and said, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim. And the colleague said, no, I had no idea. And she said, well, I, I find it offensive what you said. And, the, and her colleague responded, well, you're not like them. Mm. The old, the and, old, you're not like them one. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I, you know, and so, you know, the positive that came out of that is that you know, this Muslim woman engaged her colleague and, and I think helped educate her. But, I mean, the amounts of misunderstandings and misinformation um, are just absolutely incredible. And I, I, I do believe that so much of this goes back to 9-11. Yeah. And I understand that people uh, have, you know, uh, enormous, enormous muscle memory from, you know, the tragedy of 9-11. Um, but I'm also well aware that you have... You know, media outlets and elected officials who have done an awful lot to fan the flames. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me ask a bit more about one of the other findings. Uh, so there's a question regarding discrimination against Muslims. Um, it says it was, it was evident to respondents. Uh, and let me read this again. It said discrimination against Muslims is evident to respondents and skepticism around hate crime reporting is low. Uh, a recognition of discrimination against Jews is much more limited. And I know you mentioned that this uh, survey was issued prior to the um, uh, yeah. horrific events at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Um, but is that recognition, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm thinking, if I worded this right the first time, but is that recognition of that discrimination, does that also follow along political ideology? Um, yeah. There, there were differences, um, but I, I, you know, the the it was one of the the counterintuitive findings to come out of this is that your average respondent recognized, in, you know, it was a majority, seventy one percent, recognized that there's a lot of discrimination against uh, Muslim Americans as well as uh, transgender persons and blacks. And so we we asked questions about other minorities just to get a sense of of what people think about um, a range of issues in a range of communities. Right. 
Um, and then, but inversely, uh, two thirds of Americans disagree that the same discrimination is evident for Jews in America. And so, um, I, I, I can't tell you why exactly they, they felt that, but I, it certainly, you know, this, this the survey was done prior to the 27th, uh, the October 27th Pittsburgh, uh, synagogue shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if we had asked us after that, we would have gotten a different response, but, um, it certainly was surprising. And um, it's worth noting that, you know, I do quite a bit of, of research um, looking at, at hate towards Muslims, but also other minority communities and the research is increasingly clear that the folks who don't like Muslims also don't like Jews mm-hmm. or blacks or other minorities. I mean, these folks do not operate in a silo. And yeah. uh, um, what social media has done is, is brought people together and allowed, you know, uh, folks to share toxic ideas and go after various communities. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I once heard uh, Jim Rohn say that there's only about five or six really bad people in the world. It says that they just move around a whole lot. Um, <laughs> well, so. you know, what's what's the expression that, that every village has has an idiot, right? But what <laughs> what the internet has done is it's sort of you it's you it's uh, linked up and united all of those folks. Yeah. Um, so they now have their own echo chamber. Um, but I mean, you you can go on you know most of the social media platforms and and you know, the language about black Americans or Muslim Americans or Jewish Americans, pretty toxic. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you know, my impression is right now the the social media company companies are, are giving this a serious and hard look to think about how they can uh, better address these issues. But, you know, we, most Americans uh, um, fall, fall into different camps, right? You've got the, the folks who are... Um, they think you should leave all this up because of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. That's what the ACLU says. And then you have others say that you should take it all down. And I, I think there's actually a middle ground. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, if you've got a group of folks out there um, that are nonstop engaging in hate speech against black Americans or uh, Muslim Americans, Jewish Americans, and that's all they're doing, and there's no educational value. And um, even if they're not inciting violence, I guess the question becomes, you know, to what end do we allow for that to stay up? Right. I mean, it would be nice if we could simply agree upon uh, that our free speech is it is connected directly to our health as a nation. Sure. Uh, And when speech begins to, um, you know, there's toxicity, it begins to poison, divide us, then we we should really we should reflect on that and and think about how we how we are using um, uh, our First Amendment. No, and to that excellent point, and just to circle back to your question earlier about educators, I mean, it's it's young folks that are that are on social media all the time, and if they're seeing this stuff and reading it, um, it's not it's not helping matters at all, right. and it only reinforces um, some of these stereotypes, um, a good many of them that are completely divorced from the reality of the world. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you. What's what's next? Um, because, uh, you know, we, we spoke about, I think, maybe six months ago. Um, and then you, you have immersed yourself in, in this research. Uh, what, what's the next thing for you? Or you, do you already you already have it have it on uh, on your plate? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of projects. Um, and one looks at specifically um, I, I'm interested in in myths and misinformation about Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, on the internet, um, but looking at this specifically after terrorist attacks, because my hypothesis is 
it's after major terrorist attacks when people are groping for information and it's at a time when myths and misinformation get shared and spread intentionally but also unintentionally. And so I'm, I'm getting ready to embark on a, uh, on a uh, project that looks at um, the last 10 major terrorist attacks, and I'm, I'm super interested to understand what kinds of things people were searching for after those attacks, and I want to compare it um, as it relates to Muslims and Islam and w- compared to what kinds of things people were searching for uh, before those attacks. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm soon to start a major project with a social media company. They're giving me access to their API. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to be doing that study. Um, but as I mentioned to you before, really what I'm trying to do is is use scholarship and data to understand two um, connected but separate sets of issues. One is the impact and contributions of Muslim Americans at the, at the local level. Um, and the second um, issue is looking at anti-Muslim activities. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm interested in the impact and contributions is because I my impression is that we, and this is sort of a royal, we don't really know much about Muslim communities right. in the U.S. And, you know, we don't know, for example, in Houston, there's a, a vibrant and growing Hispanic Muslim community. Yep. And there's a vibrant West African Muslim community. Mm-hmm. And both of those communities are quite different from the Arab communities. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm doing a, a deep dive study there that shows what those communities look like. But I, I feel like by just using scholarship and data to talk about these communities and what their impact and contributions are, it really is a way to pull apart some of the myths and misinformation. So when something bad happens, there's a terrorist attack or the president says something, you have a bunch of officials who are leaping to say, no, no, they're just like us, and it's good sentiment, and it feels good. I mm-hmm. think it is the right thing to say. Yeah. But if there's scholarship and data that they can point to, um, it's super helpful in pulling apart some of these you know, enormous... Uh, uh, pieces of, of misinformation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to uh, to talk to you when you've uh, completed this next one. Uh, this definitely sounds like it's something that's going to have a lot of benefit, um, as, as all of your work does, for um, just, like I said, to get the conversations going uh, and to help people speak from uh, from facts and not from not from suspicion. So That's right. Yeah, so we appreciate you taking the time. Um, our guest has been Dr. Robert L. McKenzie. He is the uh, he's the director and senior fellow of the Muslim Diaspora Initiative, and you can get him online. The website is newamerica.org, newamerica.org. All right. Thank, Thank you very you much. Thank you again for having me. It's All right. It's our pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. All right, Radio Islam family. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back in a minute. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org.
A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq al We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Folks, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts. So with that one, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review. We're on SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Google Play. So look for us at Radio Islam USA. So I'm always happy to talk to uh, to our friend, Dr. Uh, uh, Robert McKenzie, uh, because he just brings he brings just a great amount of information. And even though he does not consider himself an activist. Right. He, he, he said that this time and he said that the last time we talked. Uh, but I feel that his scholarship uh, is activism. Uh, I think any time that you're able to dispel myths, that you're able to inject some truth into the conversation that is, um, I think that's, that's his own brand of activism. So uh, I'm also joined, as usual, my partner, my brother, the impressive one, assistant producer, Ibrahim Beg. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Nice to be with you. Yes, again. sir. Yes, sir. So um, let's kind of go back. Number one, we know that I, I like the fact that he tried to, he, he brought the anti-Muslim sentiment back to, 9-11, like the suspicion, you know, saying that the country has a has its own muscle memory. Yeah. And I think I, I think that's that's a fair statement. Um, but it's not one that always matches up with other acts of violence uh, that have taken place in mm-hmm. the country. Uh, and we've I mean, if we go back to. Hmm, I think there was a whole city block that was bombed in uh, Philadelphia by the. Was it the, was it the, the police department, right? They like flat out bombed the city block. Wow. Yeah. Um, go back to Oklahoma City, of course. That's right, Oklahoma City, right? Um, black Wall Street. No, that's not what I'm talking about. That's different. Oh, which one were you talking I'm about? I'm talking about Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, Timothy McVeigh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Same thing. So. It really it shows that we have a uh, propensity to overlook these acts or individualize them. If it hap- if the perpetrator happens to be a, a white male, 
then we, you know, we say this guy was just off his rocker. One thing I would say also, um, you make very good points, but also one more point about 9-11 yeah. that I think is worth mentioning. From uh, We know from sources like the book Real Bad Arabs, for example, yeah. when we look at the image of Muslims and Arabs that were portrayed before 9-11, it's as if 9-11, of course, it happened and it was a horrible thing, right? It was a right. horrific thing that happened and traumatized everyone. But it raises the question, were people already conditioned to reacting in a certain way because of all the decades of stereotypes and myths that they had been uh, that they had really inhaled via Hollywood and, and these other things yeah I, I agree with you I do believe that uh, the American uh, populace had been conditioned uh, I think about a movie like True Lies Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and the foil in this movie was uh, in this instance it was the bumbling Arab terrorist mm-hmm. right uh, it was almost comic like you can't even be a good you know you can't even be a good villain um, yeah when I say condition maybe I should clarify I'm not trying to get into these you know cr- crazy theories or whatever about an intentional mm-hmm. uh, you know deliberate calculated thing but presence of certain biases and the presence of certain stereotypes and assumptions in a large population of people um, that creating a a very um, uniform reaction mm-hmm. to an event like 9-11 that's what I'm referring to yeah well, yeah and I, and I agree with that now and I still I still think that uh, representation like the movie I, I reference and plenty of others you know uh, that they play a part in that Especially when when you consider, like we're talking with um, uh, Dr. McKenzie, and he's saying that people are responding that they know. Like, I think he said fifty percent of the respondents said they knew a Muslim, um, but we're one percent of the population, <laughs> so that would be really difficult. That's really depending upon yeah. the you know like the the demographic of folks that they spoke to. Yeah, it would be interesting to unpack that yeah. that scenario mathematically. Like, how, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. Is it possible? Is it not? I don't know. Yeah, and then, and then if they knew a Muslim, then once again, you got to dive a little bit deeper. Uh, is this a practicing Muslim? Uh, and then, and then other questions that go along with it. You know, what is their um, what school of thought? Um, and are they active in the community? You know, is it just the Muslim? You know, this guy's a Muslim, but he never says anything to you, but you yeah. just know it. So yeah, and that's why I said the important. It's good to have the quantitative data. That's an interesting. But the idea. qualitative, yeah, you know, it 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 allows us to to kind of go beyond the numbers and see why the numbers are. That's an interesting. The one you last mentioned that I think you're trying to say that is a kind of could it be people just assuming oh that guy I work with yeah he must be a Muslim or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really interesting. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, could be, could be. But um, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, we have just come through the midterm election, the, for some, dreaded uh, elections and some who are really looking forward to them. We had over 100. Uh, we've had over 100 Muslims that have run for office. Uh, we have, we will be witnessing two Muslims sworn in on a Quran. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to, <laughs> that's going to be really, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of conversation around that. Yeah, and and not like, all positive. Right. Not all positive. But like last time when it happened, Keith Ellison did it. It was yeah. the first one. Mm-hmm. It was a, there was a really, uh, pretty, pretty big backlash. Yeah. On on Tom, it was right. on Thomas Jefferson's. Yeah. 
right? So I mean, like, okay. And if whenever uh, people mention that when they were complaining, oh, how do you do? It? They always forgot to, or maybe didn't forget, but intentionally left out that part. Yeah. Whose Quran it actually was? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, the founding fathers. So we're going to have two new Muslims sworn in: um, Ilhan Omar and was it uh, Rashida um, uh, Talib? Mm-hmm. Yes, Talib. Yeah. Yeah. So the two of them, and this is a uh, this this is great. Um, it, it's great, and I think what what this says first of all, it says that. When we realize, number one, we are a minority, we only, we're only 1% of the population, uh, even in areas where we are the, where we find ourselves as a minority majority, uh, it still means that there are plenty of non-Muslims who, are, who see this person as an asset and not as an enemy. And I think when, uh, when we really start to uh, think about how important this is, this is going to really lay the groundwork, not just for uh, for Muslims, but I think it's going to lay the groundwork for um, for, for anybody who finds themselves kind of on the outskirts of uh, of society. So, I'm, I'm glad to see it, um, and I'm definitely looking for more Muslim representation, especially once again these minority majority uh, districts. I think <clears throat> I think that's where you find. Well, I don't want to say that, but I was going to say I think you would find more Muslims in those spaces. Um, mm. But yeah, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That's something we got to go look up, right? But I do think because of these two huge victories, yeah, uh, Rashid Tlaib and Ilhan Omar mm-hmm. from Minnesota, um, there's going to be even more Muslims and Muslim women running two years from now. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, and definitely Muslim women. Yeah, yeah. I think we had. Uh, I think we're still waiting for the results. Uh, I think Abdul Nasser, who was running for, is he running? For for one a county position, oh, I don't remember. Okay, all right. Well, we'll come back to that one then. We'll come back to that. Uh, but there were also some really interesting, some interesting developments that took place uh, yesterday, uh, and that is on the side of uh, uh, resolutions or um, propositions that, that that came out, and one which is going to have a huge impact on future elections, and that's uh, Florida. So Florida residents who have served time in prison, they've regained the right to vote. And that is huge because I think the number was estimated around uh, at around 1.5 million uh, additional votes that this, would, that this would bring in. Now, the fear, the fear in this generally, we're talking about um, empowering the folks who have lost that right to vote and, you know, just across the nation, so many states have just tremendously uh, punitive approaches towards uh, towards felons, not just denying them the right to vote, but also uh, the right to earn a living in particular ways, the right to um, uh, public programs. Uh, so I think this is big, and it's, and it's going to be it's going to be pushed back. I think we can probably expect to see even greater levels of voter suppression in Florida uh, and any other places like this because the assumption is that these are going to be people who would vote Democratic. And I think that's a, I think it's a fair assumption, but I think it also means that if that's the case, the Democratic Party is going to have to widen its um, 
widen its framework. It's going to have to widen, uh, lengthen its agenda and start speaking to the concerns of that part of its constituency. So whether it be um, taking off some of the restrictions as far as uh, uh, jobs are concerned or licenses or uh, giving greater support uh, to, to folks after they return home, uh, but it's going to be something that they're going to have to respond to and not just assume that because these folks have been, uh, that they have the right to vote, that they're going to automatically vote Democrat. Ibrahim, what do you think on that? Do you think they're going to widen, uh, widen the tent or they're just going to look for those votes to come in? Do you mean are they going to try to suppress those votes, those potential votes that are coming in? No, no, two things. One, I do believe there's going to be an element of voter suppression, mm-hmm. especially considering that, you know, DeSantis won. Um, but I think, but, but the question I'm asking is, will the Democratic Party, because the assumption is often that these will be part of the folks that will be voting Democrat, mm. are they going to actually move beyond just, okay, come on and vote for us, but are they going to really look at their concerns and, uh, you know, and, and lengthen their agenda to earn that vote? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Is it, is it, um, do we know enough to assume that they're all going to be Democratic or the majority are going to be Democratic voters? I just think, I just feel like that's an assumption. Yeah, maybe. You know, uh, and generally because the Democratic Party has been painted out to be now more of the, you know, the social programs, social welfare, social welfare. Uh, so that would fall right in line with um, returning citizens. So maybe, yeah. I mean, it makes some sense. You can see like demographically, maybe, I don't know the demographics of even the present population of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that Republicans will try and certainly frame it as a big Democratic scheme to, you know, get all these votes that they're not supposed to have and so on. Right, yeah. right. So, I mean, when it comes to voter suppression, one of the biggest stories was uh, came out of Georgia, and that was with the Secretary of State who's running for governor, and um, there's not been a concession uh, speech given uh, as of yet. But... Uh, he was, the office was taken to court. Um, it was widely noted that there were 53,000 people at one point that had been taken off the voter rolls, and the majority of them being uh, African American. So this, this, this uh, reality of voter suppression uh, is real, uh, and the attempts, the attempts are not going to stop. I think they're going to become even more uh, brazen and even more uh, just... Uh, duplicitous in their, you know, in their attempts to keep people from the polls, uh, to keep their power base. So we'll, we'll see. All right. Um, also, something else that took place, San Francisco's tax on tech. All right. I was looking for things that took place after the election. Uh, there, was, there was something on the ballot. There was actually something on the ballot here as well. We'll we'll talk about that, too. But San Francisco's tax on tech. Voters in the California city have voted in favor of Proposition C, which is a controversial measure. Supporters say will greatly help the city solve its crippling homelessness crisis. And it will bring an estimated 250 to 300 million 
$1,500 a year in added taxes from about 400 of the city's biggest companies to be spent specifically on the problem of homelessness. Now, of course, this means that um, who's really happy to be taxed? Uh, so there, there's always going to be um, a, a contingent of, of, of folks, not, not really individual folks, but corporations that are always looking for to pay less taxes. But I think in this case, I'm, I'm glad to see this because, you know, to whom much is given, much is, much is required. All right. And then they're also saying that, and I think this is interesting, there is a, a correlation between the existence of these tech companies in this particular um, part of the country uh, that is related to driving up the cost of living, which has pushed thousands out on the street. So in that regard, I think it's absolutely, absolutely just justified. Right. You've had a, a hand uh, in, of course, you know, um, creating jobs, some high paying jobs. But at the same time, it's also made it so that the the native, um, the, the folks that have been there prior to your arrival can no longer afford to be there. So it's it's a different kind of uh, gentrification. So glad to see that. Uh, glad to see that happen. And as a matter of fact, who do they have opposing? They had um, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, right? Uh, he, you know, he, he put it out there, you know, he's against it. And uh, another critic was the mayor of San Francisco. Don't understand that. Uh, London Breach. Uh, so her thing was she cited a lack of adequate accountability for existing funds to fight homelessness is a reason not to gather even more. Get your books together. That's all that means. Get your books together. If you, if you don't know where the money's going, you need to get somebody else. Um, but the homeless, uh, that problem is not going to go away. And the responsible thing to do is to is to put some money behind the problem, some money uh, and, and some resources behind it. So good for you, Sam Fran. And what was the last thing? Oh, yes. How did chickens wind up on the ballot? Don't really know. But uh, but but let, let's read it here. It says Californians were asked to vote on a number of propositions that range from housing, help for veterans, the elderly, and those with mental health issues, to approving the renovation of children's hospitals. Now, it says they rejected a proposal to limit the amount of dialysis clinics uh, can charge patients, promoting prompting a jump in healthcare stocks. Wow, this is rough. We're gonna go back over this in a second. And a proposal to repeal gas tax increases approved by lawmakers last year. But voters agreed to allow the state legislator to decide on daylight saving time and approved a ban on the sale of meat and eggs from any animals, including chickens, not housed in adequately sized spaces. I think that's actually that last thing was really good. We're going to go back up to that dialysis thing in a second. But that last piece, because this is about treating animals humanely. It says they put a ban on the sale of meat and eggs from any animals, including chickens, not housed in adequately sized spaces. A couple of questions you might want to ask. What's to be considered adequate? Right? These aren't free-range chickens, big difference. But if you've seen any of these, I think Forks Over Knives and comes to mind, and then there was a, there's a bunch of different documentaries that have been out, and they've shown how it's about the consumption of meat and they kind of track it back to the source, and they show how these chickens are housed 
and it's just absolutely um it, it is it's sad it is sad to see you know them going over each other and the way they're treated uh pumping them up with steroids some of them so big their legs break uh, because they're growing faster than their bones can actually support the weight. So good for you once again. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's that's a good thing. Give them give them their space. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, but going back up to this dialysis, I have seen more dialysis uh, clinics popping up on the south and west sides of Chicago in particular in the past, I want to say maybe 10 years, um, that I would have, like, like is, every, is everybody on dialysis? Hmm. Like, you know, I, and I don't know if it's Does the same. Does that have to do with the increasing, like, rates of diabetes? Or? Well, one of the effects of diabetes can be decreased kidney function. Um, so, yeah, I guess those can go hand in hand. Uh, but but finding these things isolated or seeming to be isolated in uh in communities of color that's disturbing uh for me on, on quite a few levels but the the money and obviously they're there because they're making money so but they said here uh, this in California that they rejected a proposal to limit the amount dialysis clinics can charge patients once again once again, that you know, they didn't put any uh, no no caps on it. But I have to ask the question: for these people that I see pulling up into these dialysis clinics, a lot of them are in those vans that are you know uh, like paratransit type uh, deals, you know where they'll come get you, take you, and bring you back home. Yeah. But I feel like they're probably they're probably just just doing the people. I mean, just emptying their pockets out. And and I know not everybody, I'm not speaking for all of them, but I would say that quite a few of the people that are getting this life-saving, you know, uh, uh, procedure, these are not people that are wealthy people, you know, because they're not in wealthy communities. They're not putting these in wealthy communities, but this is a service uh, and uh, it's a procedure these, these people need in order to be able to live. But they're not going to put a cap on it, you know. So mm-hmm. it, it gives me questions. Like, I don't know how much yeah. they charge right now, what people are having, having to pay. But I'm not optimistic about this one. Not at all. So tell me about your vote, voting experience uh, yesterday. Do I have to tell you who I voted for? <laughs> That's on you if you, <laughs> want, if, if you want to, because I'll tell you. I... Um, well, the experience itself it was it ran very smoothly for me. I went in there around like twelve p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, got my I wasn't they didn't check my ID. They just checked they like they asked me my you know identity, what's my name and stuff, date of birth, address, mm-hmm. and then once I responded to that everything correctly, they're like, all right, go over there, get your ballot. So I did. I filled in the ballot. Um, made a mistake on the ballot. The one of the referendums, I think it was the one about like property tax. So the way they word a referendum—that's if you know if you study like political science, um, that aspect of it. Referendum is always worded in a tricky way, right? Yeah. Like you can get anyone to vote on 
and whatever you want. Did you use scratch? You, you use the paper ballot or the touchscreen? Paper. Okay. Yeah. So I use the paper ballot. So the property tax thing is like, do you oppose a increase in property tax or something like that? So so the thing is, you see the word property tax and like increase, and you're like, oh no no no, no property tax increase. Right. And then you're just like, no, do you oppose an increase? So I so I like, oh no, I, I made a mistake, crossed it out, and then. Yeah. Filled in the other one. So when I was trying to put it in the machine, the machine wouldn't take it. Oh, man. Because it's called overvoting. You voted for two options when you're only supposed to do one. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I had to go in, go back to the table, get a whole other ballot. Uh, took them a while to, like, reconfirm my identity or whatever. And then you and then you seal it up in this envelope. They give you, like, this manila envelope. You, seal, you fold the ballot, put it in the envelope, seal it, and give it to them. And they check off your name again just to make sure people aren't voting twice for no reason or whatever. Right. And then I voted again correctly. Okay. And then the machine took it. So then I was done. All right. <laughs> now, my biggest hurdle was... Uh, and, oh, yeah, by the way, when I was walking out of the place, there was a guy there, just some guy, like, from the neighborhood or whatever. Mm-hmm. He was trying to ask everyone, like, are you Republican or are you Democrat or whatever? Oh, really? And then... <laughs> I don't know why. I just, I just told him I'm independent. None He's your, like, oh, none of your business, oh you won't tell me. <laughs> none of your business. My biggest, my biggest challenge was, uh, and my wife and I, we both went in to vote together. She walked up, gave her name, address. They got her immediately. I go up, and they can't find me. So long story short, 10 minutes later, they found me because instead of the, the hyphen in my name, between the L and the A, there was just space. Uh, yeah, so we did that, uh, and we didn't really talk much about this, but $171 million out of his own pocket, but he he won the election. Yeah. So our, our new governor is going to be Governor Pritzker. Um, but we got to talk about that. We have to get back into that some more because that's, yep. that's ridiculous, $171 million. All right. Well, we thank you all for... Uh, yeah, you see, I just got real comfortable. I just called y'all y'all. All right, folks, it is time for us to go. So we appreciate you hanging out with us. We thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host, uh, Tariq el uh assistant producer, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. Uh, we produced uh, today's show for you. Hope you enjoyed it. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, I leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.